Uh, well, you guys probably have many Christmas traditions in your home. Uh, maybe one of them is like our family where you like to watch Christmas movies. Okay, everyone's got their favorite. So what I want you to know is what is your number one absolutely must-watch every year Christmas movie? Go ahead, just shout them out here. Grinch? What's that? Okay, I heard, I heard Grinch is the only one I really heard. Did anyone say Elf? Elf, okay. A Wonderful Life, there we go, absolutely. And uh, I had one guy first service say Die Hard. I hear that's the thing. There you go, Die Hard. I was expecting maybe one of those Hallmark movies like A Christmas Prince or something like that. Anyway. Well, you actually mentioned It's a Wonderful Life, uh, and that's one that I think that we all know very well. For me, it's, it's a movie I really like. I don't watch it every year, but maybe every few years or so, uh, because it's one of those stories that captures our imagination, and we come back to again and again. And you probably know the story of It's a Wonderful Life. It's about this guy named George Bailey, uh, played by a very young-looking Jimmy Stewart, and uh, his frustrations with how his life has turned out. Uh, basically, George uh, surrenders his dream of going to college, traveling the world to help out the family business, his own family, and his community. And after years and years of sacrifice and service, uh, he comes to a breaking point, and it seems like his life's a failure. Because despite everything he's done, all the service he's put in, the, the old rich guy in town is poised to take over the entire city one Christmas Eve. And uh, George, in his moment of frustration, runs out uh, to the, the bridge in town and says, I wish I had never been born. And he throws himself off the bridge. Now, okay, I can't even say spoiler alert because the movie's been around for like forever. If you haven't seen it by now, you're not going to see it probably. But he doesn't die. Uh, he throws himself in the waters and then his guardian angel rescues them, pulls him to the side and shows him what the town and the world would be like if he had never been born. And that's the movie. But really, I think it is George Bailey that makes us keep coming back to this movie over and over again. He's made a mark on us. Because probably at some time or another in our lives, maybe we felt like we could relate to George uh, in some of his frustration, some of his exasperation with how life has turned out. Now, sometimes life's really good and we see things with perspective and have hope, feel like we're making forward progress, that things are going good. But other times it's absolutely the opposite. And we maybe feel stuck or overwhelmed or even like the whole world's falling apart. I mean, we could look at a lot of things. Time is short, bills to pay, people are sick, relationships are ruined, expectations are unmet, skies are dark, and there's a cold snap of coming. And in that uh, kind of fog of war of just the daily stuff of life, we can lose perspective. Uh, we don't think clearly. And we can feel like, you know, what's the point? Am I really making any progress here? Or am I just kind of churning away and grinding away till I die? Uh, it's like George Bailey. We want to know, do our lives really matter? And I think as Christians, we can come to a similar crisis in our faith uh, and much, because much of the time in our Christian faith, too, we can be saying, okay, things seem to be going well. We have a clear perspective. We have hope. We can pray with expectation. But in other seasons, our hearts really get weighed down and distracted by all the kind of muck that we have to deal with in daily life. And it could just be the bills and the cold snap that's coming like everyone else. But on top of that, in our faith, we might say things, you know, 
I have been praying for fill in the blank for years. I've been praying for that I would find a spouse or that so-and-so's health would finally get better, that my own spouse would show an interest in Christ, and I just don't see it happening. Why should I even pray? Or we look at the same thing with their service. We say, you know, I've been pouring all my time into fill in the blank, my kid's faith, maybe a volunteer ministry, maybe a place of service. And you say, you know, I've made real sacrifices for, for this thing or these people, but is it making any difference? It actually looks more like it's going to go belly up any second here. And when the season is dark and when our circumstances seem to mock us in our faith, we want to know, well, does our Christian faith really matter? Well, I'm glad to tell you, yes, our faith does matter, uh, even when we don't see the immediate good fruit coming from it. But I do want us to think about this topic a little in depth and scratch at it a bit, because I think that sometimes when the chips are down, our hearts have a real hard time believing that our faith matters. I mean, we might be able to say the words and go, yeah, I know, my faith matters, but do we really believe that? And it's important to have that strong belief that our faith is making a difference. Because if we're shaking that, well, yeah, we are going to get stuck in discouragement. We're going to not want to pray for things. We're not going to want to serve God wholeheartedly. And we can even justify just this kind of slow drift into sin because what does it matter? What does it really matter at all? Now, I think this is a particularly timely topic for us because it is near, time, near Christmas time here. And for many of us, this is the best time of the year. And if you were there this year, if 2023 has been a really good one, I'm, I'm happy for you. We're all, we rejoice with you. May you be an encouragement to so many others who may not be there right now. Uh, if, if this is uh, where you're at, this message might not be as relevant uh, for you today, but just tuck it away. But for others, Christmas time can be one of the most challenging times because we do see the joy in the friendships and fellowship other people seem to be experiencing, all the good things. But we're not there uh, for whatever reason. I can, I can tell you just from talking to folks and having prayer requests come my way, it seems like this year's a little heavier than usual. And that's what's surprising to me. You think, hey, we're past COVID, so everything should be great, right? I know a lot of folks are really struggling right now. And uh, at Christmas time, we actually feel this gap more acutely because we have this sense of where life ought to be and where life actually is. So if you're feeling just a little bit like George Bailey this morning and are maybe discouraged with your circumstances or wondering if your life or even your faith really matter, uh, this one's for you. Uh, I'm kind of approaching this topic just out of a little bit of a pastoral tickle uh, that I feel like our people need to hear. And uh, I'll also say this too about our main passage that we're going to look at. It's a little bit of an odd choice for a Christmas message. But I'm, I chose it because it's one that God has used to encourage me recently. So I wanted to share it uh, with all of you. And this is the basic question I want us to look at this morning here. What do you do when you're losing your heart in your walk of faith? And uh, we're going to give you the answer to that right up front. When you are losing heart and feeling like, hey, my prayers don't matter. My actions don't matter. Forward progress just isn't happening here what we need to do is to keep looking up, okay? Very simple. Very simple to say. Nothing complicated about this, but this simple, simple message is profound when it sinks down into our hearts. And I think, frankly, it's something that some of us need to hear right now. Uh, for the past several weeks, uh, we had been in the book of Romans, but we're gonna take a break from that today. 
Uh, Pastor Eric preached sick last week. He was sick last week, so I got the call Monday morning. He had a very gravelly voice. I shouldn't tease him about that. It was kind of funny. He's here today, so he's, he's feeling better, but he still has the same gravelly voice. So if you see him after service, just talk to him just to hear his voice. It's kind of fun. Uh, but he wanted to take on Romans 8 next week where he was left off uh, last week. So we're going to do a topical sermon this morning on finding hope uh, in the, when we're discouraged. And I'm going to go to three different passages uh, to look at that. We're going to look at a passage from 1 Corinthians and two from Isaiah. So we'll do a little bit of page flipping today. Uh, but it's three passages, one common theme of finding hope. We're, we're discouraged. And um, as we look at these passages, we're going to just see three different ways that we can keep looking up for encouragement when we are discouraged in our walk with God. So uh, just to start out, let's turn over to the first passage in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And the verse we're going to start in is at, actually at the very end of the chapter in verse 58. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Right before chapter 16 begins. Okay, uh, before we begin here, just looking at our question, what do you do when you're losing heart in your walk of faith? Well, you keep on looking up. Looking up at what exactly? Well, first thing is this. You keep looking up at your glorious future in Christ. Let's read uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul says this to the Christians in Corinth. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Okay, just a short little verse here. And it begins with that word, therefore, so you know that there's a lot uh, that is front-loading that, that leads into that. And we're going to look at what leads into that, but I want us to see where Paul lands at the end of this chapter, because it gives us insight into the struggle that the Corinthians were having here. Uh, in this short little verse, Paul just gives three basic exhortations. First one, stand firm. Second one, let nothing move you, kind of similar. Third one, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And do you know what kind of people you say those three things to? People who are in danger of not standing firm. People who are getting shaken in their faith. And people who are tempted to not give themselves fully to the work of the Lord. And Paul's final assurance to them in this verse is that their labor in the Lord is not in vain. So apparently they were struggling with this feeling too. Saying things like, you know, man, nothing I do for God matters. So I'm not even going to try in my faith. A little bit of George Bailey thinking here. Um, well, what's going on in Corinth uh, that was shaking these people's faith so much? Basically, uh, there are people in Corinth who were falsely teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead, no future life. All there is, is the here and now. So uh, let's just look at this back in verse 12, same chapter. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Paul says there, he says, but if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? Okay, so uh, that's, that's some false teaching going on in Corinth. And some of the Christians had bought into it, uh, this false teaching, and they've lost hope that they have this glorious future in Christ or any future whatsoever. And they concluded, well, hey, you know, if there's no resurrection, if these teachers are right, and there's no future life, the best I can do is live for right now. Live in the moment. YOLO, right? You only live once. 
But that is some destructive teaching, uh, some destructive thinking, and Paul wants to correct it. So uh, go ahead and jump down to verse 32 here. Verse 32, Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead aren't raised, quote, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, end quote. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Okay, so Paul's calling out this faulty thinking in Corinth here. And his point is this. Our thoughts about eternity, our future life, they shape how we live now. And he says, well, you've got two options here. Well, one, you can conclude with these false teachers. There's no resurrection, no future life. And then you've only got the here and now. And you're going to live for that because it's all you get. Or you can realize that, yes, there will be a resurrection. There is a future life. And um, because of that, you live differently here and now. Our words, our choices... They don't just impact us here and now in this life, but they have the potential to shape eternity. So there's this future legacy uh, to reap. And this thought should fuel our Christian living even when we are discouraged, even when we are facing trials. And here's the deal about this future. It's not just kind of like any future or the same future. For those of us who are in Christ, it is a really amazing future. And that amazing future is really about what the, the last part of the chapter is about that leads up to Paul's conclusion, stand firm, don't be shaken, do everything full-heartedly for God. Uh, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but basically starts out, uh, Paul starts out chapter 15 saying, Jesus died for our sins, rose from the dead. He gives them the gospel. And then he says in the middle part, Jesus has raised, been risen from the dead. And in this last part of the chapter... Paul goes into a really kind of strange topic, okay? He talks about the types of new bodies that we're going to have in the resurrection. And Paul has a lot to say about this. And the way that Paul writes should get our attention because whenever you get a lot of detail about a topic in Scripture, a lot of volume, a lot of verses, it's one way that the writer says, hey, this is important. Pay attention to this. And uh, we could might say, well, you know, Paul, come on now. Uh, the resurrection of our bodies in the future. Why do you need to talk so much about that? I mean, it seems pretty nerdy, kind of a little esoteric. I mean, it's kind of like theology nerds would sit around drinking chamomile tea with their pinkies out talking about that. Why all the fuss about this particular topic here? Well, the reason why is because Paul is drilling it into the hearts and the heads of the Corinthians that we have a gloriously bright future ahead of us in Christ. And we need to come to grips with that bright future if we're going to live rightly right now. Um, because of this future glorious hope, we can live with courage. We can live in a way that we don't give up on our prayers or in doing the right thing and in pursuing God's righteousness instead of sin. And we're not going to read the whole chapter, but let's just catch a few verses of what Paul's getting so excited about here with these future resurrection bodies. Look at uh, verse 42. 42, uh, Paul says, he's talking about the resurrected bodies that we'll have. He says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that's sown is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's 
It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. Uh, that sounds pretty good, but there's more. Jump down to verse 50. I, de- I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Okay? That is one of my favorite verses in this entire chapter there. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Okay? It sounds a little wordy. What do you mean, Paul? It's like he's going, guys, guys, like he's super excited. He's saying, don't you know that part of the reason that we need these new, amazing, glorified bodies that I'm going on and on about is because we're in line to inherit this gloriously ridiculous future that we can't even wrap our heads around. Your old body, my old body ain't going to cut it. He's going to have to give us all upgrades so that we can even experience and partake in the good things he has for us. Sounds great, but Paul's just getting started here. He's on a roll. Verse 51, he keeps on talking. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he's given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And his point is, not, is, is that it wasn't just Jesus who rose from the dead, but we will too in these upgraded bodies that are no longer subject to sin and death. So as much as the stuff down here can cloud our perspective and focus our attention, oh, I got to take the kids to this, I got to pay this bill, I got to do this. Why isn't my prayer answered here? This, uh, we're not just living for the stuff down here. This isn't all that there is or as good as it gets. Uh, So even if we are going through trials or hurts or physical pains or rejections, we can find motivation to keep on with our prayer and to keep on living wholeheartedly for God because we know God has more ahead of us. And it's not just some life ahead of us. It's a really, really good life ahead of us. And that's why Paul ends this chapter in verse 58 saying, Therefore, therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know the labor of, in the Lord is not in vain. So we come back full circle here. Uh, when we feel like our work in the Lord is wasted, when we feel like serving God half-heartedly or just like, eh, I'm not gonna try. When we feel pushed around by the uh, discouragement of our circumstances of the day-to-day grind or what seems like an unanswered prayer, we can have hope by looking at the glorious future we have in Christ. Now, uh, moving on to our second point here, looking back at our main question, what do you do when you're losing heart? You keep on looking up. We look up at our glorious future in Christ, but second thing, we also look up at God's faithfulness. Um, The first passage was the main one I really wanted to hit this morning, so I'm gonna keep these next two pretty short. But the main thing I wanna say about God's faithfulness here is that when we consider his past faithfulness to others or in our own life, 
it gives us encouragement to walk out our faith here and now with hope, with zeal, with expectation that God's bigger purposes are going to stand, even when it's dark, even when it's discouraging. And uh, it's kind of funny because you think, well, what Bible passage are you going to go to to show God's faithfulness? I mean, it's the whole Bible. You could start literally from the beginning and go all the way through to the end and find instance after instance of God's faithfulness. In Genesis, God shows his faithfulness to that little family to save them out of famine. We could talk about God's faithfulness to the Jews in Egypt to deliver them in the Exodus. We could talk about how Naomi's tears in the book of Ruth turned to shouts of joy in four short chapters. And we could do the same for Hannah and the book of 1 Samuel and on and on and on and on. But I want to choose just one passage from Isaiah that speaks about God's faithfulness to Israel as he delivered them out of exile uh, and back to their home. So here's the background of uh, this passage in Isaiah. God's people have been cast out of their homeland and they're feeling a little grumpy. They're feeling a little bit like George Bailey. Nothing seems right. Everything's gone to pot and it seems that everything, including their faith, has been an absolute waste. And I'm choosing this particular passage out of the many I could choose because there's just such a clear contrast between the feelings of Israel, feeling abandoned and rejected, utter despair, between God who loves his people so much, even though they can't see it, even though they can't feel it. Um, He loves them, but they don't believe it. So let's turn over to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verse 13. Isaiah 49, 13. Um, God's talking to his people in exile and he's telling them that he's about to bring them out of it. Quick verse here. Isaiah 49 reads, Shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice. You earth, burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Okay, bigger context here. He's talking about bringing them out of the exile back to their homeland here. In other words, Good news, guys. God's about to bring you out of this and bring you back home. But God's people aren't having it. Uh, This is what they say in the very next verse, verse 14. But Zion, speaking of God's people, but, but Zion said, the Lord's forsaken me. The Lord's forgotten me. And think about that. The good news contrasted with response. It's a pretty broken response here. This great news comes that God's about to deliver his people. Uh, and they're jaded. They say, you know what? Yeah, whatever. I've heard that one before. Yeah, I heard it a million times. Earlier in the same chapter, uh, God's people had said, you know, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. And now they say, God, you're going to bring us out of exile? Seriously? It feels more like you have abandoned us and just moved on. But my friends, this is the contrast in this chapter. This is a great chapter. Uh, and the contrast is between how Israel feels and about the reality of God's devotion to his people here. Right after this kind of lament uh, from the people saying, we've been forgotten. Um, This is what God says in verse 15. God's response is this. He says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she's born? Though she may forget, I won't forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Two beautiful pictures here. Uh, First one is of a mother and child. You think a mom's going to forget her child nursing at her breast? Ain't no way. 
Now, as a dad, I will admit, I have sometimes switched my children's names in a mill- for a millisecond and called one the wrong name. That's not the same thing here. But the point is, is that God's love is greater than a mother's love for a child. And the second image is of God engraving his people on the palms of his hands. Uh, this week uh, during staff meeting, I was talking with our Awana commander, Amber Regatte, and she asked me to remember something, so I wrote it on the back of my hand. All this technology, I was even holding a phone, I think, and here I, I'm writing this note on the back of my hand, and that started a conversation of, oh, back in the day, yeah, you'd write it on the back of your hand, you write it on the front of your hand, remember. Uh, but how much more so is something going to be on your mind and in your memory if it's not just on the back of your hand, not just on the front of your hand and ink that's going to wash off, but engraved in your hands ever before you, or like that child with the mother. The point of those two images is the same as we are ever on God's mind. He's aware of us and loves us and cares for us that much. And from that point on in the rest of the chapter, uh, God begins to paint this beautiful picture of what their return from exile is going to look like. I'm not going to read the whole thing here. It's a great chapter for you. You're looking for a quiet time this week. Read Isaiah 49 awesome chapter. But he says, when I return you from exile, your kids are going to be abundant. We're going to have lots of kids. Your enemies are going to be scattered and far away. And even the Gentiles, even the Gentile nations are going to look on you with favor. Um, uh, And after all this, I do want to draw your attention to what he says at the end of it in verse 23. So look at Isaiah 49, 23. He says, after all this, after I make you abundant with your families, after I drive your enemies away, after I make the Gentiles bless you. Verse 23 says, then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Bottom line of this chapter, God is so faithful. Even when we don't feel it, even when we feel the opposite, even when we feel like our labor for him, our prayers, our lives have been in vain, His care and concern is greater for us than we realize. And those who hope in him will not be disappointed. Now, uh, let's be clear here. I'm not saying we won't face difficulty. We know from the rest of scripture, we will face difficulty, right? Second uh, Timothy, uh, in second Timothy, Paul says that everyone who wants to lead a godly life will be persecuted. Jesus himself said in uh, John chapter 16, he says, In this world, we will have trouble. But he also said in the same breath, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We will face uh, troubles, times of painful waiting, times of frustration and exasperation, but our God is faithful and we will not be disappointed. Now, did God uh, end up bringing his people out of exile? If you've read the rest of scripture, you know, yes, he did. Uh, One of my favorite passages on this is from Psalm 126. You don't need to turn there. But this is what the people say when they get returned. It says, Psalm 126, verse 1 says, When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, Their God has done great things for them. And God bringing out of his, his people out of exile is just one example that we are looking at in Scripture. We could look at many others. Not just in scripture, but in our own lives as well, when we remember these things. But uh, to move on to our third point this morning, let's look at our question again. What do you do when you're losing heart in your walk of faith? You keep on looking up. You look up at our glorious future in Christ. We look up at God's faithfulness. And last thing I want to direct us to is we look up 
at the incarnation. Now, I think uh, most of us know what this word incarnation means, but if you haven't heard it before uh, in a Christian context, if you're maybe new to coming to church, it just means in the flesh, right? So it's God in the flesh. God the Father sent his son to take on human flesh, to be born as a baby, to live among us and to die for us so that we could be made right with God. Uh, The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Galatians chapter 4. You don't need to turn there. But he says in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And that's really what we are celebrating here at Christmas as we light these uh, Advent candles. It's the birth of Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And uh, the prophet Isaiah also talks about the coming of God's Son. Let's turn over. This will be our last passage here. Isaiah chapter 9. I'll start in verse 1. And this is a passage that we often think of with the incarnation, with Christmas. We hear it a lot, but it's good to dwell on. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. A very familiar passage to us. Isaiah says there, to a people who are... (laughs) In darkness and discouragement, he says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They've rejoiced before you as people rejoice at harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across the shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot will be used in battle. Used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Um, That's our passage. It's well known. I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through it uh, verse by verse at all, but I do want to just focus on one aspect of the incarnation uh, because it teaches us something profound about God and his faithfulness that we wouldn't frankly know any other way. And this is it. God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, is willing to enter into our mess to fix things, to help us out. I mean, think about that. That is really profound in the incarnation here. God himself is willing to step in to our mess to lift us out. Now, uh, there's a Christian philosopher. philosopher, His name is Peter Kreeft. He's written a lot about God and the problem of evil. And he has one particular quote uh, that's pretty well known that I want to share with you that relates to this. He says a lot better than I could. He says, Jesus Christ... He came right down into our trap and died to free us. The one who asked us to trust him to solve the problem of evil uh, already did the greatest thing to conquer it. He suffered every kind of evil 
with us. He was hated by the people he loved. He was nailed to a cross and died. He even felt his father leave him horribly alone on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's evil. All the evil in the world is there. And he, there he is in the middle of it. You think of God up in heaven controlling things down here and you wonder why he doesn't do a better job. You wonder if he really cares and how he can be good if he just stays there and turns away and lets terrible things happen. But it's not like that. He didn't stay away. He came down into evil. That's the Christian answer to the problem of evil. Not a tricky argument, but Christ on the cross, God on our side. Let's say Emmanuel, God with us. The incarnation shows us God's amazing faithfulness and mercy to us. And that kind of faithfulness stirs us up to want to follow him with our whole heart yet again. I mean, I think of this. Uh, many of you guys have worked or served in a variety of places. You've had good bosses, bad bosses. Have you ever been under the kind of boss uh, who lives by the maxim, do as I say, not as I do, right? Um, doesn't want to get their hands dirty. Do you have a lot of respect for that kind of employer or leader? Probably not. But maybe you've also in life had the, the flip side of that where you have had someone who is a great leader who will get their hands dirty, who does put in the hours maybe more than anyone else, first one there, last one gone, leads by example, who says, I'm not gonna let the folks under me do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. Now, do you have a lot of respect for that person? Mad respect. Maybe change your life. But out of the many ways that God has shown himself faithful, the incarnation is unique because it shows us God's willing to lead by example. So if you're at a place where you are struggling in your faith, consider his example. The one who is willing to enter into the mess and take courage. God knowingly entered into our mess, knowingly suffered, but he also succeeded in bringing many sons to glory. Uh, we'll end with this verse here. You don't need to turn there. It's Hebrews 12, 1. It's a well-known verse. Author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Do believers grow weary and lose heart from time to time? Yes, they do. You're not alone, okay? Do they sometimes feel like their labor in the Lord has been in vain? Do they sometimes feel forgotten or abandoned by God? Yes, they do. Absolutely, which is why these topics are in Scripture. But even when we are weary and our faith feels strung out, living on fumes, we can still have hope. We can still live with zeal and pray with expectation, but we need to keep the practice of looking up. Looking up at our bright future in Christ, it's good. It's going to be really good. We need to look at the many instances of God's faithfulness in our own lives and in Scripture. And we need to consider the incarnation of a God who is willing to lead by example through the mess. Uh, for the glory that lay behind it. Uh, we want to run the race well, so we look to him.
Let me pray. Lord, you are so, so good. What kind of amazing God you are that you would take on human flesh into our mess and lead by example. My, my prayer this morning is for those who are struggling. I don't even know everyone who's struggling. You do, though, Lord. I pray that you turn our hearts to you. Give us hope. We want to live wholeheartedly for you. We want to pray with expectation, even though our hearts feel broken. Uh, we look to you. Help us. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to trust in you. Those who hope in you will not be disappointed. Let that truth sink deep into our hearts this morning, we pray. For your glory, Jesus. Amen.